Stop it! Don't open that door! Hello everybody and welcome to episode 19 of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. We like to think of ourselves as a different kind of video game podcast. One of us is an author and video game lover. That's that guy over there. He's Caleb J. Ross. The other, me, I'm a collector and recovering video game store owner. You can find me on the interwebs as VG Collectaholic. We think of ourselves as a different kind of video game podcast because we don't just talk about game, video gaming. We don't just talk about collecting, although we do do a bit of that. But we like to delve into more of the business topics, the economical topics, and the psychological topics of our video gaming hobby and our video gaming industry. To wit, in this episode... Our collecting tips and tricks segment will be about marker removal. And then we're going to get into the news. Divinity 2 Original Sin, the PC hit, is heading to consoles. Speaking of consoles, Sony has a little console in the works called the PlayStation 5. Rumor mill is running at blast processing speed. (laughs) And from the ashes of Toys R Us rises KB Toys? question mark (laughs) and the dethroned king of kong promises evidence that he didn't cheat do we believe him and then we'll get into our main event episode tonight and that's why our podcast is launching a little bit later than normal this time around because we wanted to hold off to recap last weekend's 2018 midwest gaming classic in milwaukee wisconsin sunny tropical scenic milwaukee (laughs) wisconsin caleb how are you this week Oh, man, I will tell you, I am incredibly tired, and uh, I wish I could say that's because of all the Vidya games I've been playing, but it's not. It's uh, just been a very crazy day at work, so I will start off this podcast by saying that uh, though we did postpone uh, recording so that we could talk about uh, the Midwest Gaming Classic, or more accurately, so that Scott could talk about his attendance at the Midwest Gaming Classic, uh, it was pushed push back even further uh, thanks to me. It's just been a crazy, crazy time at work, and so I've just been too exhausted to uh, to do much of anything. Too exhausted not only just to talk about video games, but to actually play video games. Uh, I have been playing Okami HD for a very long time. Uh, it's I'm about 30 hours in, and I should have been done with this game a long time ago, um, but I just haven't been able to. I'm just too, too tired, too tired. That's all it is. It happens. Yep. It happens. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it does. So how, how have you been? So you got back from sunny, tropical uh, Milwaukee. I think that something about the sun was like too nice and the planes didn't want to get too close to it. It's like a, a an Icarus thing or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? it, it was exactly it was Icarus syndrome. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. The planes did not want to fly too close to the sun for fear. They're very that, modest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for fear that the sheets of ice would melt off of them. <laughs> it was so basically the only thing it's I valid played, fear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went, you know, went to the Midwest Gaming Classic, Milwaukee. Uh, the Midwest got like 26 inches of snow um, and trapped everyone there for, you know, a, a day and a half after the event. Um, so basically, the only game I played was Die Hard 2 The Arcade Airport Clusterfuck Edition. 
Yeah, I don't recommend it. It is not as good as Die Hard Arcade. Um, so play that one instead. I don't know. I think Airport Clusterfuck kind of sounds fun. Did they do that in like the latest Call of Duty or something? The No Russian? Uh, was it Call of Duty or was it one of those? Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't See, I'm matter. tired, guys. I said it was. I, I now know. you have proof. Call of Duty. Uh, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's what happens after you eat Taco Bell. Ooh, but I'm get it. Ching. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Wake up, people. Wake. Come back. Come back to us. Come back. Oh, man. Well, I, uh, I, I'm i sorry that you were stuck in the airport for so long, although um, I'm, I'm excited actually to really kind of hear about the, the whole situation, which we'll definitely do um, toward the end of this podcast, because I genuinely haven't. I, you know, I've kept up on the community, uh, the discord channel, um, uh, the discord uh, channel at, uh, the community, the cartridge club discord channel. There we go. Got that out. Um, the forums, Twitter, of course, and everything, but I haven't really talked to anybody about their attendance yet. And I myself have never been to any video game convention. So I will be living vicariously through you not to build it up too much, but you have a lot to deliver, Scott. Well, and this was my first video gaming convention, despite mm. the fact that I've been gaming and collecting for the better part of 30 years uh i'm an anti-social curmudgeon so uh this was my first trip we had a bunch of members of the cartridge club show up from all over the continent we had some canadians we had some folks from the west coast we had some folks from the east coast uh we had some folks from even beyond the east coast because i think halifax and nova scotia is Mm -hmm. like halfway to london i don't even know where that is but uh, yeah, we will we'll dive into that in our main event. It was a great time, so stay tuned through all of this boring crap until we get to that. <laughs> oh man! Speaking of boring crap, um, the other I, I will mention one more game that I played recently, and actually that's not a very fair segue because it's pretty fun. Um, I played a, a game called Subsurface Circular, and I want to ma- I want to mention it only because I don't think it got too much attention. And it kind of deserves to get a little bit more attention. It's made by the same guy uh, who made Thomas Was Alone, uh, which was a digital only, and both of these are digital only, unfortunately. Well, Thomas Was Alone was a limited run games release. Other than that, it's digital only. Um, and uh, it, it's it's a, it's a really interesting game because it's it's very, very, very simple. It's essentially just a dialogue tree detective game. Mm. Uh, so you just choose various dialogue options, and that's, that's the entire game. And there's not a whole lot of visuals to make the game uh, any more interesting, but somehow I still loved the couple hours I put into it. Uh, I, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of replay replayability going down different dialogue options and things like that, but I uh, put in a couple hours, maybe about three hours actually, and enjoyed the hell out of it the whole time. I was, I was really surprised. Um, and before you even ask Scott, okay, this, I didn't technically purchase this game. Uh, I, I bought it using my Nintendo gold coins, uh, from previous digital buys and things like that. So I had accumulated some some gold coins that I cashed in for this uh, subsurface circular mm. game. So. so you fake bought it with fake money? Yes. Nice. And I f- played it for reals. So that's the best jokes way. on them. That's the best way to fake buy things. Uh-huh. I fake bought it. I fake own it now. Nice. Yeah. 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 yeah it looks good. like it's got pretty good reviews. Looks mm-hmm. uh, looks kind of interesting. It's totally different than Thomas Was Alone. So if you if you are going into it only because you like Thomas Was Alone, you'll probably be disappointed. So I definitely recommend uh, looking at it as a, on, on its own. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. Now, even though it's a digital game 
and it doesn't count as a collection, let's pretend that maybe I get marker all over this digital game. Mm-hmm. Scott, 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 how, 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 how can I fix that? You know, I have some tips for that. <laughs> I thought you might. Last episode, we launched a new segment, Collecting Tips and Tricks, where we're just going to talk about one topic real quickly and just some tips that folks in the collecting community might have. Last week, we talked about sticker removal, and I actually got some feedback from folks that had listened to the episode at Midwest Gaming Classic, and they liked it, some tips that they didn't know. So hopefully we give some new information this time around as well. So we're going to break out marker removal into two segments. One will be uh, how to remove marker from cardboard. So your Super Nintendo boxes, your Nintendo boxes, Atari boxes, things like that, console boxes. And then the second one, which is easier, is going to be removing marker from plastic. So your carts um, or plastic cases for uh, more recent video games, DVD cases, Blu-ray cases, things like that. So start off, let's do the easy one, get the easy one out of the way, the plastic. Now there's three things that I like to use in start in, in succession, basically starting with kind of my first line of defense and then working my way up as marker is either um, tricky, really thick, really tough to get off or really old and um, uh, set in. So the first one is just rubbing alcohol. I think most people use this and mark rubbing alcohol with a paper towel or a Q-tip uh, and you just get wet your paper towel or your Q-tip and, and start to just rub away. You don't want to rub so hard that you're tearing the paper towel. You just kind of want to make sure that you're, you're not being real abrasive with it. So mm-hmm. you should be getting the, the paper towel itself should be getting black. And that indicates that you're, you're continually removing actually more and more marker. If after that, after I've gone through rubbing alcohol with a paper towel, uh, if I'm still not getting everything off, then what I'll actually do is I will use a uh, will use toothpaste and a damp cloth. So rather than a paper towel, I'll actually move up to like a, a washcloth that's been you know, run under some water, put some toothpaste on it, and rub that on the cart. And now here you have to be kind of careful so that because with with the moisture you don't want to get it real near any kind of um any kind of sticker or artwork on the the cart this is actually a slightly abrasive method so be aware that uh, if you're doing this on something that's textured like say a nintendo nes cart or a super nintendo cart uh if you do it too hard you will actually erase you, you'll get rid of some of that um some of that texture on the cart itself so you don't want to do you don't want to be too uh, gruff with this but that should actually get almost all of the marker off of plastic if it doesn't then you can can go even beyond to something a little bit more abrasive and that's mr clean's magic eraser and that is about the most abrasive thing i would use on a cart um, but it does get marker off very nicely now the other method that i that we'll get into here is i sort of transition into cardboard this is a method that i use on both plastic and cardboard um, and that is the i call it the retrace method and so if there's sharpie or some sort of permanent marker on either cart or cardboard if you take a sharpie marker or a dry erase marker and trace over the the marker where it is the old dried marker on either the cart or the cardboard that'll actually 
sort of liquefy the underlying Sharpie, the underlying marker, the old stuff. And you can take a cloth and immediately after you've re after you've traced over it, wipe it off and you should get a, a good chunk of it off. And depending on how long the marker has been on there, you might have some discoloration there still. So do that a couple of times and you should be able to, uh, to get a good chunk of it off. The next, the, the final method that I use on just cardboard is something that sounds batshit crazy and <laughs> smells almost as bad. Your game room will sort of smell like a, like it's been roofied in a frat house. <laughs> so you want to be a little careful with this. Don't do this in too much of an enclosed area or you will also smell like a frat boy. Uh, nobody wants that. And that is to use Axe body spray on the affected area. This sounds ridiculous. It sounds like I'm trolling you. I swear to God, it works. It works wonders. I haven't come across marker that I could not get a get off using Axe body spray. So apparently Axe body spray is like the Coke you know, of, of <laughs> smelly, smelly marker removing solvents. So you take the Axe body spray, you spray it on the affected area. And this, this only works on the cardboard. If it's like a coated cardboard, not like a shipping box kind of cardboard, it'll just smear all over and you'll be left with a giant Axe brown black goo so don't do that but if you're talking about like a console box a controller box a nintendo super nintendo box anything like that this this will work spray the x on there let it sit for about five to ten maybe 15 seconds and the axle actually dissolve and liquefy the dried marker and just go ahead and wipe it off with a cloth so you'll have, you may have to make two or three passes, just wipe it off. When you're wiping off the marker, do it very lightly. Don't put a lot of pressure on it because you don't want to wipe off the gloss on the box. If you wipe off the gloss on the box, the next pass you make, you'll wipe off the, the actual underlying artwork. Um, but it's, it's astounding. I, I never thought this would work. I saw a video of this on YouTube, um, about a year ago and thought it was utter bullshit and didn't get to try it for like six months because I never had, I never actually bought Axe body spray. So <laughs> finally I just ordered some on Amazon and it showed up. I decided to try it. I had bought a, my Guinea pig was a Sega Saturn arcade stick controller that I bought on, on Amazon and Amazon in their infinite wisdom, just slapped a shipping label on the actual box, threw it in the mail. And of course it arrived with UPS marker just all over the whole thing. And so I sprayed <laughs> Axe body spray on it, wiped it off. And the thing looks absolutely good as new. It's, <laughs> it's astounding. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I, I feel like what you buying Axe body spray has got to be you know, you, you want to pair it with something so that you don't feel as embarrassed in the same way that you would buy, you know, condoms or things like that as a, as a teenager. It's uh, you want to, so you want to pair this Axe body spray with something like, you know, douchebags and enemas yeah. so that people are like, oh, okay, well, at least he's buying something respectable like douchebags and enemas. Exactly. Not, not a big deal. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or order it online and it'll show up in a nice, you know, nondescript brown box, mm -hmm. just like, uh, just like you were ordering, you know, porn videos in 1996 <laughs> there were so many times that you were describing this this process that i, I really wanted to interject and and make stupid jokes uh but i refrained 
Uh, you mentioned uh, frat house and repeatedly talking about uh, uh, rubbing hard to uh-huh. get it off. I'm very surprised that you didn't interject because <laughs> there were there were times where I had to bite my lip. I feel like you were trying to bait me, and uh, you know me well, and I I refrained. So I, I figured if I just kept talking, uh, <laughs> didn't give you an in to just you know really break through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's I mean, usually uh, rubbing hard to get one off is what I have to do when I don't have an end to break through. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you really don't want to use the abrasive method. <laughs> you don't uh, No, that's that's right out. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, uh, that's so speaking I, I, of speaking of sinning. <laughs> let's, that's a good. You know what? I'll allow it. Please proceed. <laughs> let's talk about Divinity 2 Original Sin. <laughs> we we talked about this game a little bit back in our game awards back in episode 10 it was critically acclaimed for the pc it came out back in september of 2017 by larian studios i played the original divinity really enjoyed it sort of an action almost like a diablo style game really um but much more rp heavy on the rpg elements and divinity 2 original sin looks sort of that same kind of RP computer RPG game, right? The CRPGs. I have a buddy who is a big, big into the computer game scene. He's been playing it for months now. And so they announced that it's coming to consoles that is coming, I believe to PS4 and Xbox one. I don't believe it's coming to switch or it hasn't been announced for switch yet. I could be wrong on that, but I'm stoked because I have been wanting to try it. I hope it comes out physically uh, so that I can pick it up, play it on a console. And I'm hoping that the console conversion is done well. Uh, Diablo had a console. Diablo 3's console conversion was amazing. I mean, I would expect nothing less from Blizzard. Dungeons 2 console conversion was less so. So here's hoping that it's more Diablo and less Dungeons 2. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in that book, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, there was a chapter specifically about Diablo 3, I believe, and and it touched a lot on the console conversion. Uh, yeah, but it, it's, a, it's a really interesting story about it, like how big of a deal that was to have a good console conversion of of a, a of an RPG like that. It just wasn't really done that well in the past before that. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting read. I highly recommend it. Anyone check it out. Definitely. So do you think Definity 2 will uh, make it on the PlayStation 5? I, you know, it could, it could. Rumors have been flying. <laughs> They've been flying everywhere. Apparently, uh, word leaked out that early dev kits were in third-party developer hands earlier this year. And now that doesn't mean that release is imminent or that even they have the design fully fleshed out. It could basically just be a, a PC that has approximate specs so that people can start thinking about what they're going to build and, and how they're going to develop things. Uh, but there's been a lot of lot of PlayStation 5 talk here over the last couple of weeks. You said release is imminent. <laughs> oh, release is imminent. Sorry, I, 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 I held back uh, oh, man. previously, and oh. I just couldn't hold back anymore. So. You, because release is imminent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, proceed with your bullshit PlayStation 5 rumors. Yeah, you know, I thought you were a PlayStation guy, Mr. Caleb J. Ross. This is weird, I, and maybe you can help me understand this. Help me understand why I don't give a shit about the PlayStation 5. Because I really I really don't, and I don't know why. It's weird. I should, but I don't. Why? Is it is it because it's too intangible at this point, probably? Or I think, I think it's just too soon at this point. 
Yeah. If you look at the the launch cycles, like launch cycles seem to be speeding up a little bit. You look if you look at the PlayStation One, it came out in December of ninety four in Japan, September of ninety five here in the States, and it was five years before PlayStation Two came out in two thousand. But then it was six years from PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3. PlayStation 3 came out in 2006. Then it was seven years from PlayStation 3 to PlayStation 4. That came out in 2013. So now if, if it came out this fall or this winter, it would be basically another, it would be a five-year cycle, which would be the shortest since the the PlayStation 1's lifespan. So I, I think... I think 2019, 2020 feels about right. At this point, especially in early 2018, it just seems very, very premature. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's another one. Oh, man. We we are. We're so immature. (laughs) It's very true. It's very true. You can you we always have to grow old, but we can be immature forever. That's true. Until we die of some immature stunt that we're trying to pull. Yep. Hold my beer and watch this. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, What's rumored to be in this? uh, What's rumored to be special about the PlayStation 5? Well, one of the things that I think is interesting. So a website called Semi Accurate. um, (laughs) Semi. Semi. (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, I'm done. I'm I'm done. So Semi Accurate, they've leaked uh, a lot of hardware um hardware, hardware specs for for <laughs> other consoles okay. i'm for real done sorry oh my god so they've released a lot of news and broken a lot of news so some of this some folks think that this is is relatively um relatively accurate it was posted in neogaf that it's got uh, that the the hardware architecture is based on the amd navi chip and that it's actually got vr functionality built right into it and i i buy that i mean the if you look at the the price drops on playstation vr and the fact that sony is really con- continuing to support vr quite heavily uh, I buy that it's going to be a built-in functionality for PlayStation 5. That doesn't seem like a stretch to me. Mm-hmm. However, one thing that I haven't seen, and I think it, it probably makes sense that they haven't addressed this yet, is whether or not there's going to be backward compatibility. Mm-hmm. I think that they almost can't afford not to, especially with Xbox One just absolutely crushing the backward compatibility scene. You know, they're They've released, I think... Almost the entire Xbox 360 library is backward compatible, and now they are just releasing their second and third wave of OG Xbox games that are, are backward compatible. And uh, I see just a ton of people talking about you know how excited they are on on social the social medias about playing their OG Xbox games on Xbox One. And I did notice at the convention there was a lot of X- OG Xbox stuff being. Uh, perused Uh, Mm. so i think i think the collecting scene on that is starting to take off uh because of the the backward compatibility just as folks uh had predicted once it was announced yeah i agree i I don't think playstation can i mean playstation can probably do whatever they want and still do really really well they're they're dominating the console market um and 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 uh you know exclusives games software sells hardware so there's still a reality in which they could operate without even the VR built in. They could operate without backwards compatibility and still do really, really well. But 
the optics of that are going to be pretty poor. Um, it's going to look like a smack in the face to, I think, fans if they don't have it, some sort of backwards compatibility because the Xbox rollout was so well received by fans. It, it showed Microsoft was able to show themselves as a fan forward, fan friendly uh, console when they did that because yeah. there's probably not they, they could remaster, re-release all those games. I'm sure people would buy them, but um, it felt like a fan uh, a gift to the fans, even though obviously there's a lot of money being made off of it, but it, that's just what it felt like. Yeah. And I think other consoles are going to have to do that. Well, S- Sony in particular is going to have to do that. Yeah. I think so. It'll be interesting if it's a pure console. I, we touched on this before in previous episodes as to whether we've seen the last of a last of the pure consoles after the Switch has come out, or if things going forward will all have to be the more of a a hybrid type thing, mm-hmm. console what do you think on that i would love for that to be the case to be honest i i'm loving the switch i love everything about the switch it's fantastic i would love for other consoles to do very similar things now one of the one of the benefits of a playstation and an xbox is that they are so powerful and that they are able to render such incredible graphics and incredible speeds um, and that's something that Sony never tried to, or I'm sorry, a Nintendo never tried to compete with. And so when Nintendo releases an underpowered system, underpowered compared to the other systems anyway, it's sort of okay. I think if, if unless Sony can find a way to make a hybrid as powerful as a PlayStation 5 should be, then it could be disastrous. Um, you know, they, 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 they're built upon uh, visually stellar games. That's sort of part of what they do. Um, so I don't, I think it'll be, it'll be tough. You know, if they don't do it, it'll be bad. If they do do it, unless, unless they do it absolutely brilliantly, it's probably going to be bad. Uh, I just don't see a way that they could come out on top in that particular area. So they may just avoid it completely knowing that either way, it's probably not going to be received very well. Um, or at least not going to be received as well as it probably could be if, if, if they have everything kind of together. Um, so it's a tough situation. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a portable gamer, but I have found myself taking my Switch with me on on trips. Sadly, I didn't take it with me on the trip oh. to Midwest Gaming <laughs> Classics. So the four and a half hours I spent locked on a plane without ever leaving the gate would have been uh, much nicer with a Switch since they refused to give me a Bloody Mary. Oh, boo. Yeah, yeah. No good. No good. But I, I, I go back and forth on back, going back to the ps5 here at first i thought that the the having vr baked in would be sort of a uh that meant that the switch couldn't possibly be a a hybrid type system just because i think it would be an either or sort of scenario but the more i thought about it just now while you were were sort of going through the your discussion on it it, i could see them doing a a hybrid type that looks more like say the Google's VR, right, where you you have a gamepad or whatever that it becomes the portable system you could strap into a headset and it can mm. become the the visuals for the VR, like almost like the the you know Google phones do. Oh yeah. So I, I, maybe that is is a way where they could scratch both of those and and be a hybrid switch like device as well as uh, continue down the road with VR. Though if the, though the VR headsets are powered, all of the processing and the power and everything is still tethered to the console itself. So it, it would still be it would still go back to my point about them needing to make that detachable 
uh, if I if I'm following you correctly, anyway, the detachable sort of faceplate portion as as robust as the core console itself would be, right? I think you would if it was wireless, right? If if the goal was for it to be wireless, and that's really the the major drawback with the PlayStation VR, in my opinion, is is you're always tethered for the headset to the console, so you never really have that real freedom of movement. You always feel like I can't do too much or I'm going to pull my PlayStation and PlayStation VR off the shelf and, mm. and destroy the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I, you could replicate that and still you could have the 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 hybrid portion, the, the handheld device be wireless in handheld mode or you could have in VR mode it still be tethered uh, to the actual dock where to have more robust you know processing power almost like the switch does when it's mm-hmm. when it's docked you've got more uh, less less uh, you know, down converting that has to happen uh, it'll be in, it'll be interesting to watch no matter no matter what happens here that makes sense uh, what you just mentioned there the sort of down conversion um, if that's a real term and if it's not you just trademarked it the idea that they the two experiences don't have to deliver the exact same visual appeal. I think uh, you know people are fine with a 720 switch screen. Uh, that's okay. So yeah, if if there is a the ability for uh, a docked version of the handheld of a PlayStation Five handheld to be fully powerful, but when it's undocked, it sort of just the, the you know it 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 d whatever you just said and I already forgot the word. It does that down um, converts down converts yes. So that, yeah, that's 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 definitely possible. That that could make a lot of sense. Um, let me ask a question that's sort of a larger, broader question when it comes to console generation transitions. As a collector, how are you? I would anticipate that you're kind of excited about that because it sort of closes the lid on a previous generation and therefore makes the collection uh, attainable, the the complete collection attainable. Is there an element of excitement in that regard? Yeah, there is. I mean, I always like when a a library is considered complete and that we've closed the book on it. And then not only for collecting, but I also think it's interesting from a historical perspective and being able to compare libraries of one console to another, even libraries of one generation to another. You look at how uh, the Xbox library compared to the Xbox 360 library or the the PlayStation 1 library compared to the PlayStation 2 library, the PlayStation 3 library. I think it's just interesting to see how how generations shift and as we there's been a lot of talk in this current generation about the end of generations as we know it right there's been more more iteration than revolution uh, when it comes to console generations that was the talk with Xbox One X and the talk with PlayStation 4 Pro is that they weren't new consoles they were sort of generation 0.5 and that mm-hmm. it, Microsoft did a lot of discussion about how this was this was the path they were going down where Xbox itself is an ecosystem and it's not the ecosystem of Xbox 360 and the ecosystem of original Xbox and the ecosystem of Xbox One but rather a a more holistic Microsoft Xbox ecosystem and and even Microsoft Xbox plus PC as a as an overall you know with their crossplay that they have um, so it'll be interesting to see if that continues or if this is truly and this kind of goes this brings in the earlier discussion on backwards compatibility 
as to whether Sony is really in on this console evolution versus revolution uh, mindset that Microsoft seems to be in on. Where's the most money to be made? Uh, the, the evolution or revolution, do you think? I think the most money to be made is probably in revolution. I mean, you look at look at the number of remasters that get made and sold. I mean, we're we're on the I think third PlayStation generation now to have a Shadow of the Colossus game, right? You can mm-hmm. buy it on PlayStation 2, you can buy it on PlayStation 3, you can buy it on PlayStation 4. I mean, you you hear the the people who love Mario, like Cartridge Brother P1 talks about how he's bought Mario 12 different times, right? The same exact Mario game. Uh, and so while, while gamers clamor to be able to play a game that they purchased anywhere on any console, I think the reality is that it, it doesn't really make a lot of business sense. Um, and it was as interesting that one of the panels that we'll get into on the Midwest Gaming Classic was a panel by... Sega 16, the the developer of the Sega16.com website, Ken Horowitz, his panel was on video game history and preservation. And he sort of touched on this and, and looped in how, yes, it sucks to have to rebuy all this stuff, but it's also cool that having it new and having it in front of people as a remaster or what have you also brings in a new generation to experience it as if it was a new game that may not happen if it was just all about console evolution versus console revolution. That gets back to my comment earlier about Microsoft making a play, kind of making it look like they are this a fan friendly they're making a fan friendly move with backwards compatibility in the same way that take on having a remastered version available for people to buy brings in new fans to the to the series and allows new generations to love it when the probably more realistic business side of things uh, is that it gives a new PR beat for a new product that's being released and therefore of course you, you know you, you want to do that you want to be able to give a reason to get give people to buy a game more so than just the warm and fuzzies you kind of want it to be you know it, there's there's always there's always the both angles right there's the business side and then there's also um the the emotional side that you know I like to latch onto the emotional side and make it make and make it seem like these big corporations are actually just doing things because they're good things to do uh but of course there's profits to be made and that's what that's how businesses work so well and I think I don't necessarily think that it has to be an either or either um I think like you you touched on it the bringing the the wave of new ex original Xbox games that is now back being being launched this month as being backward compatible on the Xbox One X I believe all of those games are now you can buy them on the Xbox Live store right if you didn't have the physical disc you could go and buy the the touched up version for download via digital download and it would work um, I believe that's the case. So I feel like the people who are like, like, I guess like me that have a giant 
room full of old retro discs are we're in the vast minority yes video game collecting is a huge thing bigger than it has ever been but gaming is also bigger than it has ever been and the digital purchase market is bigger than it's ever been so while i think there's a an aspect of fan service that comes from making the backward compatibility and making people like like me and and you know, johnny ayuchi and those kind of guys happy that they can pop in their their xbox library and make it happen make it work on their their console i think the that generates a, a level of excitement that is almost like a new release almost like a full remaster there's a lot of news stories a lot of social media about it and that may get people who either weren't around for the previous console generations or who didn't ha- don't don't still have the game to go and repurchase that game via via digital download which has you know massive profit margins makes sense makes sense before we leave playstation 5 i want to touch on one other news bit and that was that mark cerny who's sort of the become the face of playstation is going on this road show right talking to developers about what they want to see in playstation 5 and he did a similar thing for playstation 4 and i feel like that's a big reason for success it's like sony learned their lesson from the the the, their failures on the playstation 3 launch where they just sort of said hey here's this powerful machine you can't program for crap on it because it's hard to program for it's basically an atari jaguar um but hey it's 600 dollars and it's awesome (laughs) and screw everybody I, i think with playstation 4 it was a much more collaborative you know much more um much more collaboration with developers before the launch even. And it seems like Sony is trying to repeat that with the PlayStation five with Mark Cerny's developer discussion roadshow. Um, and Mark Cerny is, is I think he, he was the marble madness guy, right? Mm-hmm. Before mm-hmm. he was, was Sony's, which, which is interesting because when I think of marble madness, I, I think of the Xbox 360. <laughs> so really, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. I, I don't know why. Maybe I. Well, that was an Xbox 360 Live game, wasn't it? Well, it was also an NES and Atari game as well. Are they talking? Hmm. Are they talking about the? Uh, is there a different reboot of Marvel Madness? I'm not aware of. I just remember the NES game and the. Uh, I think no, it was Atari. Yeah, there's no way Mark Cerny's old enough to be the NES guy. I don't know. Maybe he did it when he was 12. That could be. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think there was a Marvel Madness game that was like one of the first early xbox live arcade games uh, unless i'm thinking of a different marble game <laughs> there's so many there are there's just it's too many marble games frankly he is uh he was the president of cerny games which he founded in 1998 okay so marble madness was came out for the atari in 1984 so i don't think <laughs> it does say video under his i'm looking at the knowledge graph in the google search results so those may not be completely accurate well, actually, I, it, it was. It is. He did des- develop the Atari game in 84. So I stand corrected. Oh, yeah, there it is. He was a, he was age 18. Wow. Wow. That really Good. puts in perspective what yeah. we've done with oh our lives. Oh, my God. We are <laughs> failures at life. Oh, uh, well. Hoofda. I, uh, I, I was terrible at that game, by the way, Marvel Madness. Oh, yeah. Me too. Me too. Uh, oh, well. Good on know. you, Mark Cerny. We're waiting to make us feel like, uh, you know, we're failures. We can't succeed. Our business is crumbling. Yeah, yeah. sort of like Toys R Us. Ooh, okay. Okay. Two for yeah. two. Go ahead. Keep yeah. going. Yeah. 
<laughs> Toys R Us. You know, you may have heard Toys R Us is closing. I think we talked about it briefly a while back. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I just saw an article that in the wake of Toys R Us's bankruptcy and clo- the announcement that they're closing all of their stores, clearance sales everywhere, that a new challenger has arisen. <laughs> KB Toys, another name from the past, is announcing that uh, it'll be coming back this holiday season. Thoughts? Ah, man. I So when we did talk about the KB Toys, uh, Toys R Us, all that kind of good stuff in a past episode, um, I did reveal that I don't have a terribly nostalgic connection to um, either of those stores. I, li- I grew up in a small town. There wasn't really such thing as a toy store in that small town. Um, the nearest KB Toys or uh, or uh, Toys R Us was about an hour's drive away or so. So I don't have any of the nostalgic connection. I do have the uh, the memories of walking through the mall and uh, stepping into a KB Toys and kind of just looking at the video games and dreaming and wishing. Um, however, I think what's what's probably you know more more interesting about this entire thing is. Um, just the the way in which KB Toys is looking to, or at least the owners of the brand KB Toys are looking to bring this whole thing back uh, by way of pop-up stores, uh, which people will be familiar with pop-up stores, um, stores that sell boners, and also stores that sell Halloween stuff around Halloween. Yep. Okay, I, I said I was going to stop doing it, but I, I, I lied. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, Halloween stores around uh, around Halloween, um, various holiday-themed stores just around various holidays, to be to be totally frank, but Halloween's probably the most recognizable one. Stores that occupy vacant uh, uh, shopping space, uh, retail space for a few months, and then go away. Um, and it sounds like to me, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, if, if you have a better grasp on this than I do, but it sounds to me like that concept would be applied to uh, various toy-oriented uh, holidays, particularly Christmas, I would assume, but then probably also a few others, depending on how successful this type of thing turns out to be. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it right on the head. This is sort of, uh, sort of it's not the KB toys that, that we grew up with. It's more of an, an Atari like return, right? Where it's, it's the name, it's the brand KB toys. It's it, the, the trademark KB toys is now owned by a company called strategic marks, which is basically just a, a clearing house that goes and buys trademarks from defunct brands and registers trademarks after they've been, they've been abandoned. So, KB Toys, Strategic Marks bought the brand name from Bain Capital. Bain Capital was a company that took KB Toys private and ran it into the ground and didn't learn anything because then they did the exact same thing to Toys R Us. There's basically Bain is a, a, a how-to course on how to screw up a, a leveraged buyout. So um, I'm sure that will probably be a, a course material in future uh, finance MBA courses because they took out far, far too much debt, leveraged the leveraged both of them to the point where they basically couldn't afford to buy inventory and ran them into the ground. Now, if if you do a leveraged buyout right, you can make a crap load of money. If you do it wrong, you end up with worthless assets and hmm. a mountain of debt. But yeah, getting back to the pop-up stores, that's exactly my understanding is that 
they're going to do pop-up stores and then see how they perform through the holidays. And in those areas that perform really well, I think the they're going to look at doing some permanent, uh, but it will be nowhere near the like the old days where you could not go into a mall throughout the 80s or 90s and not see a KB Toys. I mean, they were they were everywhere. There were at one point KB Toys actually had more stores than Toys R Us had more stores than any of the you know the other big toy brands. So it was uh, it was pretty massive for its day. I I worked at KB Toys in in high school, and so I have some fond memories of of that, and some not so fond memories of that. So. <laughs> My fear with all of this uh, is will will a stigma become attached to toys in general in the same way that there's, at least from my perspective, some sort of a stigma attached to Halloween decor because it's 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 essentially bought to be temporary. It's bought to be discarded. Um, when you go into one of those pop-up Halloween stores, mm-hmm. they're generally just a wreck. Uh, they there's all, None of the products really laid out that well. It's kind of a gross situation. And... I think people put up with it because they realize it's temporary and it's going to be temporary. We're going to have this out for a few weeks and then it's going to go in the, in the, it's going to go in the closet and and come out next year. Um, And I don't know. And and another observation that dovetails in with this is that I feel like kids in general play less with toys than they did in the past. Uh, Most of it's electronics, uh, uh, tablets, iPads, that sort of thing. Video game systems, even now more so than ever phones, kids are on a lot. There's there's less toy playing, um, and so I I wonder if it, there's going to be this sort of general shift towards seeing toys as tokens of uh, tokens of childhood rather than actual emblems of childhood. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, I wonder though if the disposable mindset actually generates more of a collector market. Mm. Uh, I think you look at things that are designed to be for collectors and those are never worth any money you know like Mm -hmm. you all of the limited editions and collector's editions and things that are being propped up in value today in the video gaming market uh will be utterly worthless once the (laughs) once the crash comes right there i mean you look at the same sort of thing happened in in the sports card industry right or um i think even the the action figure industry today you know i i it's the things that are valuable are always the things that are disposable because people didn't keep them and there aren't many of them around. Um, so maybe it'll, maybe it'll trigger a resurgence. I mean, I know there is sort of a resurgence in, in toy collecting or at least a resurgence in toy collecting as it pertains to the toys we grew up with, right? The GI Joes, the masters of the universe, transformers, all of the star Wars, all of those things are uberly collectible right now because we're in sort of that era where, our age group has disposable income now. Mm-hmm. If that logic were true, uh, would we imagine there would be, uh, and maybe I'm making too much of a one-to-one parallel comparison here, but would we imagine there would be Halloween mask, uh, like disposable Halloween mask collectors, or is is it just, it, or does the comparison break down when we look at it too much like that? I think the the reason you don't is because that's a singular event, right? It, it's... You mm. go out for Halloween and then you never think about it again until Halloween. Um, yeah. But I, 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 there are, there's definitely a segment of of Halloween aficionados that love vintage costumes, right? I mean, you you see that kind of thing around Halloween, and um, but I don't think it has the 
nostalgic connection that something that really defined your childhood might have and and maybe that maybe that's a mark against it too as you just said if this is if if toys become less about defining a childhood and more about just something that um occupied a weekend and was was discarded then maybe that nostalgia never actually develops mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense hmm. Well, I uh, I don't know. I'm excited to see one in real life the first time it happens, walking in there and just seeing what kind of items this thing is going to sell. You know, I, I'm trying in my I'm trying to think. Uh, well, part of the article that that, that you shared too uh, talked about um, that uh, toy manufacturers have inventory that they need to get rid of. So I would imagine that for the first instances, maybe the first couple of years of these pop up type stores, it's going to be stuff that wasn't necessarily designed to be discarded. It's going to be the stuff that just simply didn't sell um, in these other brick and uh, brick and mortar stores. But maybe if that's successful as time goes on, you'll start to see that slow degradation of quality, um, possibly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, one of the biggest losers in Toys R Us's announcement of their closing was toy manufacturers, companies like Mattel, Hasbro, um, you know, Little Tykes, things like the, the their stock in those companies plummeted because of the fact that Toys R Us was such a big a big buyer, a big customer for them that even though even though Toys R Us may not have been making sales, they were still stocking their inventory and stocking their stores and stocking their distribution centers. So the revenue was being made by the toy companies, and there's a, a giant sucking vacuum now where Toys R Us used to be, where um, it, the market looks at these toy manufacturers and, and thinks that their revenue is going to plummet. And a lot of them, uh, a lot of them saw, took significant hits to, to their stock prices. And uh, I think I just saw today, as a matter of fact, that uh, Mattel's CEO is stepping down. Hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of consequences beyond Toys R Us that Toys R Us is closing. And in turn, the the potential return of a, a large toy retailer like KB Toys, even if if it is only a a pop up store, um, they're still going to need to have a a distribution system in place. They're still going to need to have um, you know purchasing power that can can hopefully prop up some revenue for for some of these toy retailers. Otherwise, I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation in the toy market and a lot of contraction in the offerings as as toy makers try to cut costs. Hmm. Well, that that leads us, I think, into another discussion of top losers. Uh, that being Billy Mitchell. Now that that was harsh. He's he's not a top loser. He seems like a swell guy, but recently uh, he was uh, he was dethroned as the uh, champion of Donkey Kong. Uh, anyone who's seen King of Kong, uh, anyone who's seen, uh, I think it's King of Kong: A Fistful of Quarters. Is that what it's called? I believe. Yep. Yeah. Um, anyone who's seen that knows him very, very well. Anyone who has perused a, a, a barbecue sauce shelf in certain markets is probably familiar with this guy's smiling face. Um, it was recently uh, revealed that, that uh, Twin Galaxies, the uh, arcade slash company that is essentially the keeper of high scores for uh, video arcade video games, has uh, taken down, has rescinded all of Billy Mitchell's high scores because of the discovery 
that he uh, was possibly using, I think possibly, allegedly, I don't know if it's proved yet, using MAME software or emulation software to uh, get some of his high scores. Um, and this is important because um, when you're dealing with uh, high scores in video games, old arcade games especially, uh, the hardware is uh, part of the experience and the hardware is actually, uh, it, it changes to the hardware are difficult to do. So you have sort of an even playing field no matter who's trying to, to play the game. Once you offload that ROM or once you push that information into an emulator, um, it's much easier, or I guess I should say much more difficult to discover cheating. It's much easier to find ways to cheat. So based on my understanding of all the stories and everything, there's no necessary necessary proof that he cheated. It's just that he didn't necess- he didn't use authentic arcade boards when uh, when creating the high score. And therefore, the possibility of cheating is there. Um, but but the truth is, he did break the rule. You're not allowed to use the emulation software, and he did use emulation software. So, uh, or at least allegedly. Again, I have to make sure I'm speaking about this um, appropriately uh, because you know lawyers do listen to this podcast, and they want to make sure that uh, we are not uh, misspeaking. Judges as well. Um, so yeah, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think. Uh, what's possibly in- interesting about it as well, to me anyway, is that Twin Galaxies is also banning him from submitting future scores, which that seems a little harsh to me. Uh, Billy Mitchell seems like a guy who um, had this one very niche, nerdy thing going for him, and he developed or perhaps already had an ego um, regarding this this particular uh, this particular achievement. Um, and I think to ban him from submitting future scores is sort of almost a slap in the face. Um, you know, if, if he can prove that he is submitting these, uh, uh, you know, above board, then I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be allowed to submit future scores. Now, it could be that he's so far out of practice that getting a high score in a game this late in his life, um, I think he's probably 50, 40, something, I don't know, um, is uh, is probably not necessarily in the cards anyway. I'm sure he planned on just coasting on the fame of being a Donkey Kong high scorer for the rest of his life. Uh, but anyway, you know, it's it's one of those stories where I actually kind of feel, I feel for the guy um, because, again, he probably didn't have a ton going for him other than this fame and his barbecue sauce business. Um which isn't to say that that's a bad thing. I don't want any any barbecue sauce uh, uh, any barbecue sauce uh, uh, owners out there. I don't want to make it sound like that's not a big deal. Um, but you know, I just feel bad for him. I guess is really kind of the what I want to get at. I, it's weird saying feel bad for an alleged cheater, but I do. Yeah, I do too. Um, I he he as he's he's sort of portrayed right in the King of Kong as this villain, right? He's definitely the antagonist rather than the the protagonist, which is sort of um, the position that is ascribed to Steve Weeby, um, who ironically is, I think, Twin Galaxies is crowning as the now the the first million million score Donkey Kong player um, with the banning of Billy Mitchell. But I think what this, re- I can't help but think that every time I see an article about Twin Galaxies, it's only when they're in some sort of a pissing contest with someone or <laughs> with, it seems like there's really like neo gaff level drama that's associated with Twin Galaxies and a lot of like, um, just EP complaining. Now I'm not in this whole like high score scene. I'm not in the, you know, the competitive gaming scene. So um, maybe it's just me being a, a curmudgeon about something that I don't really get. But 
I, I do. I feel bad for Billy Mitchell. Uh, I got to meet him at last weekend's Midwest Gaming Classic. He was there and was there were still people flocking to him, taking pictures with him, getting autographs, buying his hot sauce. And I, I don't have a a frame of reference to compare it to what it used to be like, you know, if, if it was a, you know, if it was a step down from the, the popularity that he used to have there. But I mean, he was, it didn't seem like he was dejected. Didn't seem like he was depressed about it at all. He was still talkative. He was funny. He was very, uh, very kind. I mean, he definitely the, not the picture of the, the, um, egotistical sort of uh, antagonist that you get from the King of Kong documentary, very much the very much the opposite. So, um, yeah, I think and I think that sort of humanized him. You know, before he was in in my mind, sort of this uh, mullet wearing guy that was just sort of clinging to a, a score that he had you know, 20 years ago or whatever. But, um, I think, you know, when you get to meet the, meet the, meet a person, it really humanizes them and, and, and takes him out of this caricature and brings him to real life. So, um, I do hope everything, you know, works out for him and that he can, if he is innocent as he's claiming and that, uh, he does have proof that he didn't cheat, uh, hopefully, you know, twin galaxies, is willing to come to the table and sort of admit that they were hasty. That is one thing that it seems like is, is a very quick decision. Like they, the, this uh, information sort of came to light and then it was, Oh, he's banned and the stripped of this crown. And even the Guinness book of world records is dethroning him because they rely on twin galaxies. And uh, it just seems like very knee jerk reaction before um, all of the chips are on the table, so to speak. Mm hmm. I agree. I agree. So you mentioned that you had met him at this uh, this event that I'm just now hearing about called the Midwest Gaming Classic. I've, I've never heard of it. Uh, so I therefore I, I, I didn't want to go. Uh, so I'm glad I didn't. Um, but I guess if you want to talk about it, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you you really missed out. You should have you should have come. You could have been snowed upon and <laughs> freezing rained upon, and probably had your trip home canceled. Ah, it would have been um, worth it. Yeah, but you would have been in Wisconsin. You could have had beer and cheese curds with a a certain co-host of the Masters of Unlocking. Ooh, I've heard uh, of that podcast. Yeah, yeah, I hear they're great. Mm-hmm, me know? too. Um, I or at least they're drunk most of the time. <laughs> I've heard one of them's a jerk. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's absolutely mm-hmm. true. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, one, it was one of them. One of them. At least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> now the the Midwest Gaming Classic was a great time. Uh, this was my, as I mentioned earlier in the show, my first video game convention that I attended. It was at the Mil- the Wisconsin Center in downtown Milwaukee, uh, and a bunch of Cartridge Club members went. Musty Hobbit was there, Mighty Q-Dog and Mrs. Q-Dog, uh, Dean Lasagna, Cartridge Club brother P1, Sean was there, Julian Vega, uh, Base Guy, It's Rocket Sauce, Milwaukee is his hometown, so he was there and uh, was was repping Milwaukee in, in full with full aplomb. Uh, the game grinder, old ass retro gamer, uh, just a, a, a host of people. I'm sure I'm forgetting some folks, but um, it was it was a blast. It was great to meet 
these people who you know you and I have been conversing with and part of this this online community cartridge club on the forums on things like discord on twitter and they sort of become you know they become digital friends and it was nice to get together in person and hang out have some beers um just you know just chat and and get to know each other. So that was that was definitely the highlight of the event for me. Um, was was getting to know uh, getting to know some of these fine folks a little bit better. Mm. I'm jealous. That's all. So uh, t- tell me about um, what other highlights are there? I mean, meeting the people would have been awesome, but I've never been to a, a convention. You know, I've I've never I, I've been told that you know you got to go to one at least one in your life, and so. Uh, maybe like what are some what were some highlights and then also maybe like how was this what type of convention specifically was this i imagine my i've been to a lot of literary conventions that's kind of where my frame of reference is at um and so a lot of times it's uh a fair num- fair amount of selling you know uh uh, f- uh floor space for like uh for booths and things like that to sell things and then all of the panels on the side um but then i know some video game conventions also have a developer presence mm-hmm. um i i it, I didn't get the sense that this was one of those types of conventions, so I, I don't really know. But yeah, to talk about that a little bit. Well, the Midwest Gaming Classic has always really had a a truly retro focus, um, whereas a lot of some gaming conventions are more uh, they're more about the entire history of gaming, and even even Portland Retro Gaming. Uh, the Portland Retro Gaming Expo is, while it's called the Retro Gaming Expo, I think it does have a wider scope than, and it draws from a wider swath of gaming history. Um, the Midwest Gaming Classic, it, it was definitely had a retro feel. They had a, a room for pinball, right, where you had just a bunch of pinball games. They have a room for classic computers where they had, you know, like old Atari 2Es and things set up. They have had a room they had a, multiple rooms for old arcade games and it was by and large all arcade games like rampage and galaga and pac-man and a lot of those classic um you know early 80s era golden age of arcade type games they did do some some developer meet and greets so they had panels by developers and again they were all developers from the 80s for the kind of Atari to early Nintendo era, uh, folks like David Crane, who did Pitfall, A Boy in His Blob, Ghostbusters for the Nintendo, um, or maybe the Atari, I don't remember. Um, Gary Kitchen, who did Keystone Capers and uh, the Simpsons games for the NES, Bart versus the Space Mutants and Bart versus the World. Um, Brian Collin, who did Rampage, which of course just came out in the theaters. I just saw that last night, and uh, it was definitely a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's weird to see the in the game you're you're playing as the 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 animals right so it's Mm -hmm. weird to see them as almost the villains (laughs) but but brian collin and jeffrey lee who is the the creator of cubert they did a panel on turning your game property into a cinema so Hmm. you know it was very sort of topical and and timely there is there a cubert movie yeah there's a cubert movie i didn't know that yeah okay yeah which uh is is bizarre uh, <laughs> well i guess if they can make a rampage movie they can make a cubert movie that's true and i've heard actually that the rampage movie not only you just now saying it was pretty good but um one of my favorite movie movie reviewers is uh movie uh movie bob i think is his name movie bob reviews he does 
reviews for geek.com. Um, but I, I don't really watch movies, to be honest. I, I just don't very often, but I still watch movie, movie reviews. That's weird, I know. But uh, he went on and on. He actually said it was the best video game movie that's ever been made. Like, it's, wow. it's, it's such a different kind of movie, um, but he actually really, really liked it. So I had a lot of fun with it. Some, some guy canceled recording a podcast on me last night, so I had a free <laughs> evening and decided uh, I'd go with a couple of buddies to see it and was really glad I did. It was, it was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, it's a cheesy action movie, cheesy, you know, almost sci-fi film, but, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. And when I go to a movie, I, that's really what I'm looking for. I want it to be fun. Uh, I want to, I want to enjoy myself while I'm there. I don't want, I don't go to movies to be depressed or think about real life or, you know, give me some sort of a think piece on society. Um, I want to be entertained and I want to have fun and, and I want to eat some popcorn and, and pour my flask into a $9 Coke and, uh, (laughs) you know enjoy it and and rampage was all of that well i did say one of the co-hosts for that podcast was a jerk so i guess we know which one it is now clearly yeah <laughs> he's uh he's a conceited sob i'll mm-hmm. tell you but then there were you know not just developers but there were some some other industry folks there too that did panels and then had meet and greets where you could take pictures sign autographs and stuff uh john st john who is the the classic voice of duke nukem Tim Lapatino, who we mentioned a little bit on on a previous episode, he's the the author of the Art of Atari book, which is is gorgeous. And definitely, if you love video game art, definitely check out Tim Lapatino's books. Ben Heck of the Ben Heck Show, of course, and Terry Diebold, the owner of the Nintendo PlayStation. A lot of just personalities, and it varies from from convention to convention as to who's going to be there. Uh, I think Terry Diebold does a lot of them, just you know, taking the Nintendo PlayStation on tour. Um, <laughs> but then there were, I went to a couple of panels. I didn't get to as many panels as I wanted um, just because I was hanging out with the guys from the Cartridge Club and uh, going and trying to explore the entire vendor floor. There was a, a large vendor floor, um, which was a little underwhelming, frankly. There was a, a lot of volume, but it was nothing that was like... Um, I didn't find anything super rare that I had to have. Uh, I did get one pickup that I'd been looking for uh, for quite a while and, and is relatively rare, but it's not something that was like, oh man, I can't believe, you know, I can't believe they had X, Y, Z. And the prices weren't all that fantastic. You know, everybody talks about going to video gaming conventions and bundling stuff together and getting great deals. But frankly, most of the prices that I found were... Uh, like eBay prices and above. And mm. even after you haggled and tried to bundle things together, there was very little discount and you almost had to try to get things down to eBay prices. And if I'm going to do that, I'm not going to spend $1,500 going to a convention for a weekend. And I, and I, I just sit at home and in my boxers and, and order eBay stuff all day. Not to mention shipping it too. I mean, I don't know if you shipped it or took it back with you, but that's pricey. So, yeah, I mean, if I was going to buy anything in, in of any volume, I definitely would have had to ship it home. I was able to, I basically packed a backpack into a suitcase on my way there, thinking that then I could fill the suitcase with stuff mm. um, and have a backpack as my personal item and my suitcase as my carry on. And so that's basically what I did. And, and I did fill the, the suitcase. I got a bunch of Xbox games, the original Xbox. So 
one of the pickups. We don't really discuss pickups anymore. We've sort of moved out of that unless we have something big. And the week before going to the event, I did make a, a pretty sizable purchase. I, I've been going for an Xbox set, and I've mentioned that multiple times on the show before. And I had about 250 games out of the roughly 900 game set of original Xbox. But uh, I discovered that a, a fellow Instagram collector called uh, The Halo Guy was selling off his, his original Xbox uh, collection. So I bought that from him and instantly went from like 200 Xbox games to just needing about 40 games to complete the set. That's so. insane. <laughs> God, that's yeah, insane. It was a, it was basically buying a, a giant wall of video games. And, and, uh, that was, that was much more of a pickup highlight than anything I, I got at the convention. Wow. But I, I did go to a couple of panels that I thought were, were really interesting. Of course, the, the cartridge club folks, uh, P1 of the Cartridge Bros, Musty Hobbit, uh, Mighty Q-Dog, Rocket Sauce, and Dean Lasagna were on a panel uh, about building a community and talking about the growth of the Cartridge Club and how they've been able, they've been successful in growing the community and welcoming new members and trying to keep it a place that's about the community and not about the content of you know the content creators or about the collections of the collectors or about the personalities right it's more about being a welcoming place being a place where we can all connect and and i thought they did a really great job of involving the the audience you know every one of them um went through and talked about what community was to them and what they see how that interplays with the cartridge club um and it was a just a fantastic session. I, I really applaud those guys. They did a, a great job and had a great turnout too. They they had the uh, the room that they were in was probably you know there was probably several dozen people there, which uh, was one of the larger turnouts that that I saw for any of the the panels. So props. That's to, awesome to those guys. And then the other the other panel that I really enjoyed was the first panel that I went to, and it was by Ken Horowitz, who I mentioned earlier, the the uh, creator of the Sega16.com website and author of Playing at the Next Level, A History of American Sega Games. Uh, Ken Horowitz is a professor at the University of Puerto Rico. He's a, a professor of English literature and uh, just a really erudite guy. His presentation was on video game history and preservation, which is... It should come as no shock to anybody who's ever gone on Sega16.com, his site. Uh, I've been going to that for years, and actually, I was at the panel, and I didn't realize that's who he was until <laughs> he mentioned the the site uh, in in his in his discussion, which was a little ways in. So it was cool cool to put a face to a website that I found incredibly valuable as I uh, have been going collecting, trying to dig deep and, and find information on, you know, rarities and uh, developer backstories and things like that. And, and Ken, um, he was just a fascinating guy to talk to. He's a, he's a professor. So he's, he's very eloquent, very well-spoken, very used to, um, you know, filling an hour with, uh, with knowledge in a entertaining way. 
And, and I think I'd, I'm, I really like to reach out. I'm planning. You have done a wonderful interview a couple of episodes back. With, yeah. So I, I think I'm going to reach out with Ken. I was able to chat with him a little bit on the floor uh, the day after his presentation. Uh, so I'm going to reach out to him and see if he will uh, be so kind as to, to, do, spend a little time interview, you know, a little interview with us. So nice. um, yeah, so stay tuned and uh, maybe we'll have another, uh, another round of another episode with the interview here on Masters of Unlocking. Man, it's, it's, it's it sucks that he's going to have to talk to the jerk of the two co-hosts. I mean, that's true. Yeah. I mean, we that's were in agreement. F- it was you, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're we're definitely in agreement about that. <laughs> As uh, anybody who is in Milwaukee can attest, this last weekend. <laughs> so, does uh, going to this uh, the Midwest Gaming Classic does it reduce the uh, excitement that you have about Cartridge Con in uh, July? No, it actually excites me more about uh, going to Chicago for the Cartridge Con <laughs> in July, and I think that's because. This gathering in Chicago is really more about folks from the Cartridge Club getting mm-hmm. together to hang out, right? It's not a, it's not a convention, a video game convention in the in the traditional sense. Really, the thing that that underwhelmed me about the the Midwest Gaming Classic was it was truly the vendor floor. Mm. I was not knowing what I was going into and hearing the stories about people finding X, Y, and Z at the convention. I don't know if I just built it up too heavily in my mind but if i went to another one i probably wouldn't expect to buy basically anything Mm. you know so i think shikartridge con is is much more my kind of convention Uh, i've seemed to be i I don't know if that's just because at this point the things i'm looking for are the rarities and are the things that are hard to find so i'm not you know by and large i'm not going to buy a bunch of cartridges that uh it loose stuff or cartridges from you know n64 super nintendo things that are readily available at a lot of these uh, that were readily available at a lot of the booths yeah you're probably not necessarily the target demographic for those people it, it seems weird to say that but if they're probably really shooting for that middle ground uh casual collector or even casual player i guess to some degree and then you're sort of the upper echelon tier where you kind of have to meet people in dark alleyways in order to get the the deals that you're probably looking for pretty much yeah Yeah. the 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 dark alleyway and which is probably why i don't like people because i always (laughs) i always end up going to these dark alleyways and having very strange (laughs) very strange interactions Oh, that's how you got your wall of Xbox games recently. It is. It is. The fog has lifted. Yeah, the guy opened up his trench coat and it was just a wall of video games underneath instead of dangling counterfeit watches. (laughs) Or dangling other things beyond underneath that trench coat. Depends on the alley, I guess. I guess you're right. You're right. Uh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to a Shakartridge Con uh, the, at the end of July. Super excited. There'll, there'll be, from my understanding, there'll be some live podcast recording opportunities, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of cross-play, uh, cross-collaboration-y type stuff. So chances are, if you are familiar, even just tangentially with the Cartridge Club, one or two members or so, you'll probably get to know quite a few more members by listening to and watching maybe some of the content that comes out of that. So I'm, I'm really excited for it for that reason. And, and also just to meet everyone. Um, it's so weird to, I don't know, this, this, this shows my age, but it's still weird to me to say, uh, I'm, I'm meeting someone I met on the internet, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, that's just how it's always going to be. I think. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. We're old. We are old. True. Very yeah. true. 
Yeah. And you know what? It's my bedtime because <laughs> I'm old and uh, I need to wake up at five, four in the morning because I'm old. I'm with you there. I'm with you there. And before we close it out, can I can I give one quick plug here? That no. I, I didn't warn you about. I'm going to do nope. it anyway. I'm, I'm the jerk now. We trade off jerk <laughs> responsibilities. Um, so a quick uh, plug, uh, but it's not just about me. It's about this show because it makes sense. Um, on 425, uh, uh, April 25th, I'm going to be posting a video on my Burning Books YouTube channel. Um, 425 is the one year birthday anniversary of what remains of Edith Finch. It was released in 2017 on, on April 25th. Um, and as, uh, Scott alluded to earlier, I did do an interview with, uh, Ian Dallas, the creative director over at, uh, Giant Sparrow Games, uh, which created what remains of Edith Finch. And, um, we talked obviously during that, during that interview a lot about, uh, the game, um, what remains of Edith Finch. And, and also we talked a lot about specific elements and specific scenes in that game. And I thought it'd be kind of cool if I overlaid portions of that interview with actual gameplay footage so that as you're listening to the interview, you can actually kind of see in the game what it is we're talking about sort of thing. So the video will go live on April 25th and it's a much truncated version of the interview. The interview was about 45 to 50 minutes or so. Um, definitely go back in the, in the archives of the Masters of Unlocking podcast mastersofunlocking.com uh so that and and uh watch that or listen to that interview to get the whole thing the video is is i think about 15 to 17 minutes or so if i remember correctly so much truncated so it should give you a really good taste of not only um uh ian dallas and and his thought process and what remains of the finch but also maybe a little taste of the types of kind of interview conversations and things like that that may become a staple here in the future on uh, the Masters of, Unlo- uh, Masters of Unlocking podcast. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. So thank you for that uh, little bit of time there, Scott. I appreciate that. Oh, hey, no problem. It's <laughs> almost like you're a co-host of this podcast <laughs> and can do whatever the hell you like. Oh, man. Thank you for, for inviting me. Hey, it's no exciting. problem. You know what? You know, I'll even plug you. Oh, what? I'll even plug you. I thought we were going to stop saying dirty things. Oh, well, well, maybe I'll just promote you then. <laughs> okay. Okay, so if you like this podcast and you made it to the end, so as Caleb likes to say, clearly you like it, you can join the conversation with us. Find us on the social medias. You can find Caleb on all the internets that matter, except Snapchat, because Mm -hmm. he's a goddamn adult. Damn right. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the web, and YouTube. He is Caleb J. Ross on all of them everywhere. Caleb J. Ross. That's just the letter J. He's not like Jay Z. He hasn't made it to that level of of superstardom. He's close. Mm-hmm. He's close. He's a he's a YouTube superstar. He's frankly he's the only reason that this podcast has anybody listening to it, and <laughs> I'm the reason that our listenership has not exploded because uh, I he, don't know he reels them in and I just like slap them away. I I think we do an equal job of slapping away. Have you seen my uh, YouTube video views? Not stellar. So if if I'm the anchor to this uh, this podcast, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he's too modest. Too modest. <laughs> if you like being bashed, if you like uh, being ignored. No, I, I kid. I kid. <laughs> you can find me on the social medias and the internets. All of those same places. Again, not Snapchat. <laughs> you can find me, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the web as VG Collectaholic or VGCollectaholic.com. Uh, and collectively, you can find us most places as Masters of Unlocking. But not Twitter, because that's too long for Twitter, because Twitter's, you know, 
dumb. <laughs> you can find us there at MOU Podcast. It is your bedtime. So, it is my bedtime. <laughs> it is way past my bedtime. I'm still angry from spending five hours on a plane before we ever even took off. You have a right to be angry until you the day you die for that. That's that's absurd. That's good. I need more reasons to be crotchety. <laughs> but hit us up. Hit us up online. We love to chat. We, uh, we're not as crotchety on the Twitters. <laughs> and don't forget to give that subscribe button a little clickety-click, little clickety-clackety <laughs> on your podcasting platform of choice. We'd love it if you would come back here for each of our episodes. We release every other week. Normally, we try to do it on Monday, but because I'm lazy and uh, and I'm and tired, usually it usually comes out, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday. But every other week, like clockwork, uh, somewhat non-dependable clock, but yeah. every other week for sure, like a medieval clock, right? You know, shit happens, mm-hmm. frankly. But hey, every other week, come on back. We will fill your head with business, with economics with psychology, with crotchety old man grumbling, (laughs) and you will enjoy it. I guarantee it. (laughs) Or your money back. So thanks for listening. We will see you next time on episode 20 of the Masters of Unlocking Podcast.